So the talk this evening is about the ecology of compassion. This is about the landscape of our hearts and the interrelationship of our inner world with our outer world. From what I hear and see in various communities I'm connected with, and also what I feel in my own heart, there's a growing sense of urgency. There's a growing sense of doing what we can to help, to be of service, to give of ourselves, no matter how insignificant we think our offerings can be. To touch the world, which is increasing in complexity, in speed. To touch the world with simplicity. To touch the world with slowness. To touch the world with kindness. And these are all qualities that we're learning to uh, embody, to understand, to to be in the world with. Equally as strong, there is a growing spiritual urgency to go within, deep within, to that place of simply recognizing, simply acknowledging, simply knowing the inner landscape. We spend so much of our waking hours, even our sleeping hours, uh, in relationship to the outer, what's going on outwardly worrying about it, planning about it, remembering about it, um, doing, doing, doing about it. And this time that we've spent together is so, so precious because we come to take this little portion of our time compared to the rest of all of our time that we are in activity in the world to go within to see what's happening in our own hearts and minds before we begin projecting our hearts and minds out there in the world, before we begin projecting what we find to be our reactivity, our unconscious uh, thoughts, words, deeds out there in the world. So here we have the opportunity to experience a clear view of how it actually is in our hearts. This takes a sobering honesty. It takes a courageous kind of effort to, be do, to do this, to be able to open to what goes on inwardly and not flinch. It takes that kind of unflinching courage To see what the underpinnings are of our personality are, to open to that is really painful. To see, you know, this is how it is when I face people around me who are making normal bodily sounds of movement or, um, you know, just the irritation that comes up from simple things, activities uh, that we see in other people. It's painful to open to this, and so it does take a lot, a lot of courage. There was an article about Buddhist women last year in the Shambhala Sun, and I was struck by this saying of Agnes Au. 
She talks about unlayering this pain, which is part of our process here. And she says, I see this path is actually an invitation to strip naked at one's own pace. And in so doing, to experience the vividness, the vividness of an unfiltered life. And isn't that what we really deeply all wish we could be in our lives, just live our lives from this vivid, unfiltered place, to be with reality, of course, just as it is, instead of overlaying or projecting our views of how we think it is, or how we want it to be, or how it was in the past and it should be now, again. It's, it's interesting to me how um, I experience how we live in this kind of unreal world of my own projection and then someone's projection onto my projection and then my projection onto that projection and so forth and so on. And it's so far away from the actual truth of how it is. It's, it's like we really do live in this unreal movie most of the time if we're honest with ourselves. And I don't know about you, but you know, every time I'm on retreat, I come to that place of that ability to see that delusion, which is transformative in that moment. It, it opens the mind so abruptly and so um, relievingly in that moment. But it also encourages in me a deeper, a greater, a stronger intention to uh, be more awake, to not live in my projection, to not live in my thinking, which is erroneous sometimes. And then you know, live in another person's projection onto that and my projection onto that unreality. So to live in this vividness of an unfiltered life means so much to me, means so much to us as practitioners on this path. So through this process, we discover what the habitual forces of the mind and heart are. It's necessary to do that. What creates this inner terrain that has an effect on this outer terrain? This is important that we do this. Facing this truth is part of our spiritual practice. What are the inner habitual forces that create an ecology of peace, an inner ecology of harmony, happiness on this individual level, which affects the social level. We're smart enough, we're intelligent enough to know that. How can we recognize this over and over again? How can we rely on that recognition and incline towards nourishing that peace, that harmony on an individual level so that it works on a social level. Inclining or nourishing towards that is what we've been doing here with our uh, Vipassana practice, especially with our metta practice, with our equanimity practice. 
the Buddha talked about what a person reflects upon over and over to that his or her mind will incline. And so, as you know, in the metta and in the equanimity practice, we talk about inclining the mind there to that. It's not like an overlay of um, unrealistic idea onto life. It's just inclining the mind to that place, that wisdom that already exists in the heart, that uh, we want to send ill will. This is a good... We want to send goodwill. (laughs) This is a good thing to send goodwill. It's good to incline the mind towards uh, balance, towards spaciousness. Reflecting on it over and over and over again. This is nourishing, inclining what is good, what is wholesome. So we see how that works. We also see what inner habitual forces create an ecology of unrest, distress, disharmony, fear on an individual level, which also affects our social level. His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, until you understand the meaning of suffering, those are those levels of unrest, distress, distress, disharmony, fear, there will still be a measure of hypocrisy to your compassion. I believe that it's really true that until we see this in ourselves, it's um, not so easy to open to it in others. We may say we can, but we really can when we see it in ourselves. Can there be a clear accepting of this so that these forces are recognized vividly without any filters, swiftly, before it affects our minds so much that it comes out in our speech and in our actions, so that it's recognized quickly enough so that it's not nourished. Upon recognizing these unwholesome forces, nourishment of them doesn't happen. They're not acted out they are automatically relinquished. So, in short, the Buddhist teaching is all about nourishing or nurturing what creates harmony in ourselves and in others. It is also about to disarm what is harmful. So we must know what is harmful. We must see that in ourselves. So this is what compassion is all about. It's about seeing clearly so that we can disarm what is harmful and seeing clearly enough, getting close enough so that we can nurture what is wholesome, what creates harmony. Without doing this inner quiet investigation, clearly seeing the inner landscape, it's difficult to do this in a way that's really truthful. We can never hope to have a truthful effect on the world out there, a harmonious effect on the world out there, if we can't bring harmony into our own hearts. We may never hope to change the whole world. Maybe we do, but maybe some of us see realistically that we can have a great effect when we change our own hearts. 
transforming our hearts is a real possibility. It sends ripples of goodness out there, even from those places where we're quiet. What we've done in these last nine days sends ripples of goodness, sends ripples of wholesomeness out there in the world. It's no small thing to be here and uh, relinquishing what is harmful, creating harmony in our own hearts. The practice we're doing requires tremendous compassion to be able to do this. His Holiness again says, Compassion doesn't make the atrocities of the world disappear or see them as right. It just stops those atrocities from continuing in our own hearts. And this is bigger than we think it could ever be. So usually compassion is thought of in terms of helping or saving others, of facing the suffering out there and acting on it. But we all together miss a very important first step when we think that it's just all about saving others. It's all about seeing what's going on out there and taking a stand about it. It's that tender-hearted care and willingness to open to the hardships of our own heart that really make a difference, to develop the courage to open to that first noble truth that Steve spoke about the other evening, the truth of suffering. It comes in various manifestations, as we've seen here in our practice. There was one um, statement of the Buddha that had a great effect on me in developing compassion, in developing this ability to be with whatever is coming up in my own heart. When the Buddha said, there is one thing, O bhikkhus, which are all of us again, the not seeing of, which keeps us bound on this cycle. And that is the noble truth of suffering. The not seeing of, or the resisting of the noble truth of suffering keeps us bound on this cycle of suffering. When we're in denial or, we're so, or sometimes acting out as if we're so um, the, out of righteous indignation, out of idealism, that it must be a certain way before we face the way it is. So one of the descriptions that frequently is given about compassion, or we may hear the word karuna, which is the Pali word for compassion, I think it's also the Sanskrit word, is this, this compassion makes our hearts quiver when we see others afflicted with pain, with sorrow. It said the chief characteristic of compassion is the wish or the inclination of the removal of suffering. So there is a sense in this description and also when we feel the quivering of our own hearts, there is that sense that um, that inbuilt 
inclination, that intrinsic inclination to move towards the alleviation of suffering whenever we can, whatever small way that we can do it. This quivering of the heart, when I heard that um, description and when I began to practice compassion and notice compassion when it just arose in a spontaneous way as a response to someone's sorrow or someone's pain or my own sorrow or pain, I really saw, felt the quivering of my heart. It wasn't that hard to experience. You might have experienced it yourself. And it sort of told me that my heart's alive. It's awake to this. It's not dead. It's not just in this stillness of standing back and with that equanimity that's part of compassion that just says, this is the way it is and does nothing. But it's quivering with the readiness, the aliveness to know that this is what's happening and the readiness to do something about it. When compassion is there, close by are some, uh, is some wisdom, the ability to access some wise action, some wise words. So the Buddha was said to have this great compassion, this maha karuna, great compassion. The quivering of the heart, so powerful, inclining towards the removal of not just suffering per se, but the removal of ignorance. It's interesting to watch my own heart, um, how it's been trained and easy all these years. Sometimes not so easy, but more trained. I can see it's more developed in being able to open to suffering, bear suffering in myself and in others, but to open to ignorance, to, to when one can see ignorant actions, actions based in ignorance and not seeing clearly, words based in ignorance, not seeing, not speaking clearly, not speaking the truth, covering up the truth. Just, it's just abounding in our, in how we live today, in the world we live in today. To open with compassion to that has been another level of practice for me. When we see someone that is working from that place, acting out of that place, and not apparently, like in my face, harming me or someone, but you see it's out of ignorance. Opening my heart with compassion to that has been a whole other level of practice for me. For the Buddha, it was this state of Maha Karuna, the state of very high, very profound compassion that was a precursor to his 45 years of teaching during his life. At first, um, it's a story that he wasn't um, immediately uh, inclining towards offering teachings. But because a great being 
prevailed upon him to offer the teachings. And the Buddha then opened his divine eye to all the beings in the world and saw that there are some beings in this world whose eyes are filled with little dust that may be able to open to these truths that he was willing with that seeing, with that understanding, with that compassion to offer this great body of teachings which we all partake of. And you might say, you know, without getting beheaded about it, that we are those beings with little dust in our eyes that are able to be here day upon day and open with compassion to what's going on and to face it moment by moment. So sometimes when I give up on myself, you know, momentarily giving up on myself, or it might be a whole sitting period or even a whole half a day when I just go in my room and pout (laughs) and um, just say, this is what's happening. Pouting is happening now. (laughs) And um, just being with it, you know. And and then I realize that uh, this is... If, if the Buddha could have this compassion to give these transformative teachings, and it can last almost 2,600 years, then can I muster up enough little compassion for myself to just be with what's difficult and open to that, bear that in a balanced way? So the teachings of sila, which we've all practiced here, the teachings of harmonious living, the teachings of samadhi, which we've all practiced here, mental training. The mental training comes from our practice of vipassana. It comes from our practice of metta. It comes from our practice of equanimity. And the practice of panya, of wisdom, that comes out of all of that, comes this wisdom. These are the teachings that have come out of Mahakaruna, out of great, great compassion. And we're riding on that wind of compassion. It's said that there are two wings of the Dharma, the wing of compassion and the wing of wisdom. And without those two wings, then the bird of truth can't really fly. And so it's kind of a, a metaphor with the birds you've all been watching. Someone said before we came in that, oh, this is the Dharma talk, you know, watching the birds outside. <laughs> and it's true. I mean, I bet there's been so much that's come out, a wisdom that's come from your own hearts, a lot of, born of a lot of compassion of seeing what the birds go through. The mama, you know, I'm so identified with being a mother, learning to be less and less identified, going out to find that food. I mean, I just notice all the time her just going out when I see the mama going out and coming back and feeding the birds, feeding the birds, and then going out again. You know, my, my compassion has been with the mother <laughs> a lot, you know. It's like her wings must be really tired. <laughs> And um, the three, you know, so, 
And now they're flying. You know, their two wings are so strong. And that's what it's all about for us, for you. Compassion, the wing of that. Wisdom, the wing that sees how it really is because of compassion. So our hearts quiver because we can open to the rawness of life, to that helplessness, that vulnerability, which is, it seems like, unlimited in a way. It goes on and on and on and on. But we also bear it with this illimitable compassion, this great, great love that can be bigger than that, bigger than the rawness of life, bigger than the infinity of helplessness, of vulnerability. So this vulnerability that Steve spoke about the other evening, about the first noble truth, that simple, straightforward, common sense. Um, Someone called the teachings of the Buddha uh, just like high common sense. When we really look at it, it's nothing so far out in a way, just seeing clearly how it really is. But that common sense that we're all bound to this cycle of sickness, old age, and death, this is part of dukkha. This is part of the first noble truth. And it's also based on the clear acceptance or recognition, as again His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, that others like oneself want happiness and have the right to overcome suffering. On that basis, one develops some kind of concern about the welfare of others, irrespective of their attitude. That is compassion. To be able to keep giving that care, irrespective of their attitude. Recognizing this, opening to that vulnerability, is opening to wisdom. Accepting this is the way it is, with the great help of equanimity, opening to that truth of this is what life is all about. Are we really waking up to it? There's a strange kind of truthful humor. Um, Somebody told me about this anonymous person said, life is a sexually transmitted disease which is always fatal. So it's just what we're facing that every moment. When we've had to deal with, I, like all of you, had to deal with challenging people in our lives, in our community, that exhibit anger, ill will, people that um, are acting out of ignorance, and it's their, their actions are painful, too. It activates in me, it mostly, in, on first, uh, when I first look, it activates in me an anxiety, kind of a ripple of, um, I could react to that inner anxiety, an anguish sometimes. And when it's 
I look really closely, sometimes, not all the time, there is ill will. There is this not readiness to be compassionate, but there's a readiness to act out that ill will. And I have to wait. And soon enough, this compassion comes in. And there's that readiness to respond with that. To That gets activated if we wait, even just a little bit. The tenderness of compassion can arise if we're just really quiet, even for a few moments. The two great constant companions of karuna are loving-kindness and equanimity. So about loving-kindness. It's said that loving-kindness is that goodwill that when it faces suffering or pain, that loving-kindness sort of turns into compassion. So out of that loving-kindness that faces uh, pain, suffering, out of that comes compassion. Whether it's turned to a situation in the outer world, whether it's turned to a situation in our inner emotional mental state. When we really get in touch with that kind of state of heart, state of mind, when it's really powerful and strong, we see that it is unconditional. That no matter what is happening inside or outside, there is still this ability to be fearless with it, to be able to lead in with the heart and say, I can face this unconditionally, even if it's a few moments, and then in the next few moments we give up. But in the next few moments again, we can lead into it with that unconditional love, that ability to say, my heart has room in it for this too, because this is part of life. This is part of my life. This is part of the life of whoever it is we're facing. It may not be that we want to be, in in terms of our relationship with others, it may not be that we are bosom buddies with that person, but we can still keep them in our hearts. So we can offer our love unconditionally, with no regrets. We do what we can, out of compassion if action is called for, no attachment to result. So this is a story I came across that is really a story of this unconditional compassion. There's this famous Argentine golfer by the name of Roberto de Vicenzo, and he once won a tournament. After receiving the check, and posing, smiling for the cameras, he went to the clubhouse, preparing to leave. Sometime later, he walked alone to his car, and in the parking lot, he was approached by a young woman. She congratulated him on his victory and told him a sad story that her child was seriously ill and near death. DiVincenzo was touched by her story and took out a pen and endorsed his winning check for payment to the woman. 
Make some good days for the baby, he said to her. And he pressed the check into her hand with a lot of compassion. The next week he was having lunch in a country club when an official came to his table. Some of the guys in the parking lot, he said to DiVincenzo, saw you and uh, saw the woman approach you. And I want you to know that she's a phony. She's not married. She has no sick baby. She fleeced you, my friend. And DiVincenzo said, you mean there was no baby who was dying? And the official said, that's right. And he said, that's the best news I've heard all week. (laughs) It was still okay. He just let the money be there. Let the gift be there. So in relationship to our own inner experiences of fear, of pain, that's sometimes more challenging. It's hard enough to bring the tender compassion to experiences of pain in the body. And then there's the mental pain. That's hard too. Sometimes when we have experiences of pain in the body, we have the added mental pain that is um, resisting that pain in the body or having aversion to that pain in the body. And it makes it a kind of a double dukkha, you know, a double suffering. I have uh, two granddaughters that live in the, near the, in the community that we live on. And um, one of them is very, very active, <clears throat> and she falls down a lot and hurts herself. And she, she likes showing her owies to, to all of us. And so um, she was, actually, it was a time when Steve was pulling them, and she was in a wagon, and she was all looking around and being all active, and she fell out of the wagon and bruised her knee. And so she's the younger one. She was two then, and her older sister was five. So Lauren is the younger one, and Emily's the older one. So Lauren bruised her knee, and she came over in the house to me, and she said, Grandma, Grandma, look at my knee. It's bruised. Get some ice, some ice. And so I got the ice and put it on, and, and she said, kiss, kiss, you know, so gave a little kiss to it, and she felt was all better now. The other one, who wasn't hurt physically, was watching me with Lauren, and she was crying quietly in the corner. And I went over to her, and I said, Emily, you did tell me you were hurt. Where? Where are you hurt? Show me. And she said, my body's not hurt. And I said, well, where is hurt? Show me the hurt. She said, my heart is hurt. And I said, why? And of course, it was about the attention to the other sister. But what struck me was that she had this understanding that she was hurt in her heart. She was able to see her mental pain and really be with it, really. She might have been drowning in a little bit, but she just able to open up to it and tell me about it. 
So I have great hope for that one, for both of them, actually. But it took me a long time to notice there was pain in my heart. You know, so at five, that's pretty good. So to remind ourselves to soften around this whole tangle of physical, mental pain, when we're having it in the body, in the mind, that compassion is a softening. It's not a hard edge, you know, stiffening and pushing away. It's just, okay, it's like the grandma that says, okay, and you feel the softness of her bosom. One time, I asked Manindraji, one of our teachers, why does it hurt so much? And he said, because your heart is disentangling, the tangle is disentangling. The tangle of body and mind, all like, you know, not, not understanding that this is the body, the knowing of the body, this is the knowing of the mind, and there are two um, different things that arise and, a pass, and pass away. This is from the Samyutta Nikaya, the Connected Discourses. Someone asked His Holiness, the Buddha, a tangle inside, a tangle outside. This generation is entangled in a tangle. I ask you, O Gotama, who can disentangle this tangle? And the Buddha answered, one established in virtue, one who is wise, developing the mind with wisdom, one who is ardent and discreet. This person can disentangle the tangle. So this disentangling of the tangle is what is happening here in our hearts, in our minds. Knowing the body, knowing the mind, knowing the heart, seeing those as discrete experiences, not getting identified, not having attachment to a sense of self, to any one experience just seeing it all arise and pass away moment by moment. So to remember to bring this tenderness, this loving kindness to the physical and mental experiences that are difficult to bear. One compassion phrase that we often use is, I care about this pain. I care about this pain. And that can refer to pain in the body as well as pain in the mind, heart. So with that phrase, the emphasis is on care. It's not the energy being centered or lost in the pain. It's acknowledging the pain. It needs to be acknowledged, but it's not. In moments of compassion, true compassion, it's not lost in the pain. The energy is more balanced in the care, in the loving kindness, in the compassion. I remember time and time again that one of the teachers we've studied with, Sayadaw Upandita, I don't remember ever hearing him say metta, which means loving kindness, that was separated from karuna. I always remember him saying metta karuna, metta karuna, always together. So not drowning in the pain, not lost in it, not engulfed in it. Of course, sometimes we are. 
we have to give ourselves allowances for hum- being human, that of course we are sometimes. We're not wrong when we're drowning in it. We're not somehow bad if we're drowning in it. It happens. This is part of life. But with compassion, sometimes we're able to lift the energy out of that and be with the awareness of compassion around it. We're able to experience that, whatever that pain is, with clarity, with softness, with spaciousness. When we're drowning in it, this is the indirect or near enemy of compassion. It's called grief, which is an unhealthy kind of grief. So I want to acknowledge that there is a healthy process of going through the grieving process. And that is when we can be as much as we can uh, mindful of what is arising and passing away. It's kind of a conscious grieving process. But sometimes we get lost in the river of suffering. And it's not easy for us to just float on it, just be with it in a buoyant way, not drowning in it. Being with it in a buoyant way is compassion. Drowning in it is a kind of unhealthy grief. Sometimes it's pity. We're drowning in pity for ourselves, for others. We get so bogged down in the painful conditions of life, it becomes our identity. We get identified with suffering, so to speak. We lead into life with our wounds instead of with our hearts of compassion. It becomes a habit pattern that everything is based around. I came across this interesting poem. Part of the poem, I'll introduce it this way, says that our suffering can turn into pearls. They take on a luster. They accumulate as decorations, badges, and trophies. This is when you know, we believe what we're saying to ourselves all the time, and it's not really true anymore but it's just a habit that we keep doing. So because of this, a solid sense of self forms, this identity with the sense of self around suffering. So this is the poem. It's kind of, um, it's about identification with suffering. Things that hurt me turn into pearls. First, my tongue turns them over and over. They have an edge that lacerates and brings out a coating. They begin to shine. I can't leave them alone. They take on that luster of suffering. They accumulate as decorations around my neck or dangle from my ears. Trophies have a polish. You hold them close, but they hide a hollow of pain. So how are we doing this? Leading into life with our wounds, everything in life revolving around that suffering that comes from the past, 
or maybe even that present suffering that we create a sense of self around. So in disentangling this tangle, we must be careful about this to bring, we must bring tenderness and caring to each moment-to-moment experience, not build it into a monolith of me or mine, or this is who I am forever and ever, just this person, this kind of person. If we stay present, if we see through the illusion of all that, it won't happen. So on the level of dealing with the world, if we can overcome this uh, being steeped in self-pity, even pity for the world, steeped in this unconscious kind of grief, we can be of help to the world. There's an ancient story about someone sinking in quicksand. If out of pity or in overwhelming grief, we jump into the quicksand with them, we cannot really help. We cannot really help them out of that. But if we can be on the side, close to it, but not drowning in it, then we can help. So remembering my daughter when she went through, my eldest daughter when she went through um, having having, uh, cancer, that was needed to be removed. And it all went successfully. But after um, the removal of the cancer, she uh, was in pain a lot, and I was in the hospital with her. And she could see me sinking into that quicksand. And um, there was a time when she was really going through a lot of physical pain and mental pain. And I was just against the wall, standing watching her and she was saying, Mom, I need help. You got to get a nurse. You got to ask them this. And I just been through that night awake and I wasn't so physically strong. And um, she could, I was just really slinking down the wall. And she said, Mom, Mom, I need you. Don't go there. <laughs> and she just kind of reminded me to okay, just, you know, don't sink into my own sorrow and suffering about that, about her, to just get myself up out of that and be of help. So then I could do that. So that is um, loving kindness, that unconditional loving kindness and not sinking into the the suffering. The other powerful constant companion of genuine compassion is equanimity, that sense of balance and spaciousness that we've all been inclining the mind and heart to over and over again. It's out of this inclining the mind and heart to, you know, the, the things you said to yourself over and over again, this is how it is right now, All beings have their own journey. May I open to this with spaciousness? Whatever you use, you may find that coming up spontaneously in your lives. As much as maybe you thought this was boring 
or maybe what's the use of this, you know. It may be that it will come up for you and you'll see because of inclining the mind there over and over and over again, that's what naturally comes up. This allowance for spaciousness, unwavering, stable, clear view of what's happening. It's said that equanimity is what allows the action of compassion to be powerfully effective. When someone has come to you uh, when you're in trouble and you feel their balance, their stability, their spaciousness, and maybe it isn't even that you feel their love, first of all, their caring, but you feel they're like, it's okay. That stance of a mountain next to you, somehow that settles your own heart and it allows your own caring to come through. It's not tinged with reactivity, which is the opposite of equanimity, not tinged with aversion to the situation or a strong desire to get away from the situation. It's not the energy used up needlessly in those reactivities of mind. We have um, the Dalai Lama around us. We're so fortunate you know, in that we have this many great beings, but His Holiness the Dalai Lama is this shining example of under extreme conditions, he can remain balanced and calm, able to act. He talks about how during a difficult time the Tibetans reacted by attacking police and security forces, innocent civilians. And he said, this made me very sad. It would be much more constructive if people tried to understand their supposed enemy. Learning to be compassionate and forgiving is much more useful than merely picking up a rock and throwing it at the object of one's anger. The more so when the provocation is extreme, for it is under the greatest adversity that there exists the greatest potential for the cultivation of good, both for oneself and others. So if not for equanimity, the far enemy of uh, compassion, which is cruelty, the far enemy of compassion is cruelty. This cruelty would be more active if compassion weren't there in your heart, in our hearts, when we face this kind of provocation. Cruelty is the pushing away, the striking out at what is painful. We strike out with our body. We strike out with our speech. Most difficult to catch is we strike out with our minds. This is hard to see, this resentment, this judging, this criticizing. This cruelty may not come out of our mouths, they may not come out of our actions, but when we see this closely, 
This is truly a cruelty to ourselves. And we finally come to realize this, this harm that we do to ourselves by we feel it immediately, we feel the pain in our own body-minds. And if, if your minds can go here, you know, the cruelty and the um, kind of the, blind inten- the blindness of how we do that all the time goes into the karmic river of our lives ready to come up again. The actress Susan St. James lost her 14-year-old son in a plane crash. And after years of anguish and rage, she finally forgave with compassion everyone and everything that might be responsible for the accident. Her hard-earned observation was this, Resentment is like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. That's a kind of cruelty that we do to ourselves. Resentment, criticizing is another form. Judging in an unwholesome way, not the discernment. So with equanimity, there is not that reactivity of cruelty to the situation. It just sees reality with an open, balanced, spacious mind. That kind of compassion, which is forgiveness, realizes that, as one of my friends, Jerry Jampolsky, says, forgiveness is letting go of our hopes of a better past. It's, it's gone. No. So the combination of supporting qualities loving-kindness and equanimity allows compassion to fully be activated, to fully blossom, to fully be that in our hearts and be that in the world. It's devoid of that idealism and that, with that unrealistic view that it has to be in another way, that insistence that it has to be in another way without opening Sure, maybe we can take steps to have it be in another way, but there's not this opening to that. It is this way in this moment. It is this way in our hearts. It is this way in the world. It faces it just as it is. It's that tenderness, that caring for it. Because it is that way, it allows the deep seeing of the nature of life that relative nature of life. Not pushing away, not drowning in it, facing it, able to bear it, the courageous heart that is able to recognize this truth of suffering, this noble truth, is not personal. It's universal. It's not really all about me. We, we just see it on kind of this simple level, that all beings have this pain of the body, all beings have this pain of the heart. Once I went to one of my teachers, and you know I was in this place of self-pity, drowning in suffering, and um, you know I was going on and on, and he just said, "Are you the only one?" <laughs> 
And it just sort of like woke me up to that very practical sense. It opened me to how it is in the whole world. So at the universal level, we see the truth of this. We see that we understand deeply that this is the truth for all beings. Suffering is really intrinsic to being human. There is this profound human relational connection that we make then. The acknowledgement of that is very deep. And of course, the uh, intrinsic intention also arises to help that compassion, to help. As Milarepa said, just as I intrinsically care for to heal a wound in my own leg as part of my own body, why should I not reach out intrinsically to heal and care for the wound in another wherever it exists as part of this body? So there's a sense of no separation. So on this relational relative level, that's understood. And then at the level of ultimate reality experienced here in our moment-to-moment experience of life, this investigation that we're all doing together here, there's this undeniable truth that each moment of experience of what is called body, what is called mind, is transient, it's evanescent, it's ephemeral. There's no... When when there is this investigation over and over and over again, there is a seeing that there's no core, there's no solid core, there's no solid baseline, there's nothing inside, there's nothing outside that we can call a permanent, solid self that's controlling everything. So there is this transformative understanding of anatta, or no self. And with that is that, again, on a deeper level, that transformative understanding of because of no self, there's no separation anywhere. Our action and words come out of a greater care, come out of great compassion. Once after um, a retreat that really kind of turn the mind, open the mind, or whatever you call it, broke down the mind. Um, I went to my last interview with Sayadaw Upandita, and he said, with what kind of mind are you going home now? Now, I'm just paraphrasing. And, um, you know, there was that understanding of no self that happened at that time. And it's, it's no big deal. I'm not saying it was some big thing, but we all have it. But for me, it was sort of like um, something that transformed the view of the, of the world and of who I am, who I'm not. When he asked me that question, I didn't respond to like about that there's, there's nothing that exists anymore. There's, my immediate response is, I must be more careful with how I act in the world. And later, years later, I heard this quote by Padmasambhava that fit um, 
part, part of that, though, the part that says, I must be very careful about how I act in the world. So this is the first part that Padmasambhava stated, which I'm not referring to myself. He said, though my view is as vast as the sky, my attention to the laws of cause and effect are as fine as white barley flour. So we're opening to that vastness, that greatness, or you might say that emptiness. From opening to that comes that great, great care, that great, great compassion. So our practice of compassion doesn't necessarily take the pain away. It may still be there in our hearts, in the world, but it changes our relation to to it, our relationship to it. It's less painful for ourselves, in a way. It makes this ability to act with more power come forth. So I just want to get uh, down to earth with a beautiful poem by Naomi Shihab Nye. Maybe many of you have heard a few times in Dharma talks. Always worth repeating the truth. So the name of this uh, poem is called Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. You must feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you carefully counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness, how you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating mice and corn and chicken will stare out the window forever before you learn the tender gravity of kindness. You must travel where the Indian and a white poncho traveled, and he now lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you. How he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know the regions of kindness, as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes. Only kindness that sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow, like a friend. So let's let those words pass away. Notice our own kindness, our own good heart that we're taking home with us.
This talk was given by Kamala Masters at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on July 28, 2007. It is an offering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.